Turn with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. And we'll look at verses 10 through 17, a little bit in 18. 1 Peter 5, 9 says concerning the devil who is the roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him firm in your faith. Well, that sounds good, but how do you do that? Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The date was October 29th, 1531. And the great reformer Martin Luther ascended the pulpit of the town church of Wittenberg, Germany, on October 29th. His pulpit wasn't like what we're used to because of the high regard that they had for the preached word of God. His pulpit was an ornate tower that had a staircase attached to it. And there was a sense of anticipation as Dr. Luther would ascend these steps to his pulpit. There was always this moment of tension, this moment of anticipation that the word of God was about to be proclaimed. It had been 14 years almost to the day since Luther had posted his 95 theses, theological questions and statements against the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And this posting had set a theological fire across Europe, now known as the Great Reformation, in which countless people turned away from Roman Catholicism and instead turned to the true biblical gospel of Christ of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone. And this is, of course, in Christ alone. But while these positive fires of reform swept across Europe and Protestantism was burning down the walls of false teaching and of Catholic dominion, the destructive fires of personal persecution were raging in Luther's life. Eleven years earlier, Pope Leo X had excommunicated Luther. Emperor Charles V had outlawed Luther. It was illegal for him to exist. Former students, fellow pastors, and friends, such as Thomas Munzer and George Wetzel, had served as pastors, then returned to the Catholic religion and publicly denounced Luther. The Catholic-run government under Charles V had just, in that year, 1531, demanded that all the Protestant princes and towns submit to the will of the Pope by April 15th 
or face punishment up to and including military action. In other words, it was at this time in Germany illegal to meet as a Protestant church. And yet they continued to do so. God graciously occupied the government with other matters so that threat was never acted upon. This same year, in 1531, Luther was plagued with horrible migraine headaches. Often, he struggled badly with his health throughout the year. In fact, he wrote to a fellow pastor and friend, Wenceslas Link, in August of 1531. He said, I am overworked. I have been overworked. I will continue to be overworked, as I see, as long as I live. Luther's life was characterized by spiritual battles as he defended the Christian faith as given in the scriptures alone. And so it's no wonder that to mark this 14th anniversary of the official beginning of the Great Reformation, he preached from Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. He preached on the armor of God. In fact, he preached from Ephesians 6 at least seven times that we know of. This occasion in 1531, three times in 1530, once in 1535, 1536, and 1545. It was often his text at the anniversary of the Great Reformation. This particular sermon in 1531 is noteworthy in that although the text is about resisting the schemes of the devil, this is a topic which Luther frequently addressed, and although that's the main focus of the text, the center of the sermon, the star of the show, was God. God was the center, and for the purposes of God to become the centerpiece through even our spiritual warfare because Luther, of all people, knew the battles of the evil one and how, he, how Satan hates the true gospel and hates those who carry the true gospel, which is the church, the regenerated believers in Christ. And so Luther was a frequent visitor to Ephesians 6. He commented once, as I was preparing my one sermon on Ephesians 6, I read that he said, anybody who tries to preach Ephesians 6 in one sermon is a fool. Well, sorry, We're going to try. For our purposes in our series, Satan and the Schemes, I've allowed for one message to cover what I'm calling the Christian's defenses. The Christian's defenses. Now, the bulk of our messages in this series have been focused on on Satan and understanding his schemes. Today, on this particular Lord's Day, because of uh, upcoming holidays, I'm going to preach this morning and this evening in this series, and then next week we'll finish it up. But today is all about our hope. This morning, I want to tell you about the Christian's defenses, and tonight, I want to tell you about the Christian's victory. We've been spending a lot of time looking at Satan. We're going to get our eyes off of him and our eyes on our victory and what the Lord would do for us. And so, this morning, concerning the Christian's defenses, I'd like to show you three purposes for the armor of God, as given in Ephesians 6. And we'll look specifically at verses 10 through 17. Verse 18 caps it off with prayer. But that's not really part of the metaphor of the armor, so we won't spend as much time there. These purposes start small and get broader as we go. Because the one thing that I hope you take away from our time uh, together this morning, the one thing I hope you remember, the one thing that you walk out of here changed and different in your understanding of the spiritual armor of God from Ephesians 6 is that the armor of God is not about you. It's not about you. Just like Luther's sermon of October 29, 1531 featured God more than Satan, we're going to see the ever-expanding divine scope of the glorious armor of God, which is not all about you. Now, it is partly about you, and that's where we'll begin. 
the first purpose of the armor of God, your spiritual protection through the gospel. Your spiritual protection through the gospel. Paul is using the metaphor his readers would understand because they saw it every day. The uniform of a Roman soldier. This was a common occurrence. And so they introduced this topic of spiritual protection. He says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, this verb here, be strong, this is a passive verb. It means be strengthened. Something that's acting upon you to give you strength. Spiritual strength isn't something you do for yourself. You're not capable of doing that. It's not a matter of just having a better attitude. It's not a matter of having determination. It's not a matter of being smarter. It's not a matter of human logic. It's not a matter of of thinking things through. Spiritual strength comes from another source. It comes from God. And so to be strong in the Lord is to take advantage of the spiritual resources God has provided for you. You are utterly powerless before Satan on your own. And then in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now the verb changes. This is a, a grammatically a verb that this is something you do for yourself. You put on the armor of God. So the strength comes from God. The armor is from him. It is laid at your feet and you put it on. You put on his strength. You're responsible for that. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're to remember that if you think the battle is obvious, then you're probably missing the point. If you believe that the biggest problem you have is that maybe you have a spouse who isn't obedient to the Lord, then you've missed the point. The point is that the Lord would have you grow in trusting in him even though you have a spouse who is disobedient. If you think that politics is merely about the government, then you've missed the point that there's a battle for good and evil being waged. Why is it that in our country there is an even 50-50 split on a belief system? That's indicative of a battle that's happening, tug of war. If you think coronavirus was merely a health issue, then you've missed the point. Because the church of Jesus Christ has been a target of a very sneaky and sly scheme. The church has been the target of, for example, abandoning belief in the sovereignty of God. The church has been the target of changing their mission from a a defensive posture. Instead, it should be a declarative posture. Now we've been put on the defensive. No, we're to go and declare. The church has been the target of changing the very personality of the church from being a gathering of God's people to an electronic network of God's people, which is by definition not the church. We are battling against not flesh and blood, but against things we cannot see. And so what do we do? Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now many take the evil day to mean, generally speaking, the time between the two comings of Christ. And we wouldn't deny that we live in an evil age. Anybody who still believes that the church is going to bring in an age of enlightenment, maybe they don't read the news, I don't know. That's not happening. But Paul uses the same phrase in the plural in chapter 5, verse 16, because the days, plural, are even. That's clearly a broad reference to a, a longer period of time. That's more broad than the evil day, singular. So what is the evil day? 
The evil day is best understood as being alert on critical occasions, at hallmark moments, at crossroads, at a time of decision, moments when Satan may attack when you least expected. And listen, if you've been a Christian long enough, you can look back on your life and you can identify those moments. You know when those hallmark evil days have happened, junctions in the road in which a choice between righteousness and sin must be made. And the devil, by the way, would have you believe that that which is sinful is righteous and that which is righteous is sinful. That's what he does. Now that brings us to the actual armor of God. First, we fasten on the belt of truth. On the Roman soldier, this may refer to the belt that simply holds his sword, but more likely refers to kind of a leather apron which hung under the armor, protected his thighs as well. It was, it was what you put on first. And that makes the most sense. Paul lists this first. It's the first article of clothing a Roman soldier would put on. And the idea here of fastening it on, to, to fasten it tightly, it's the idea of getting ready. It's the idea of preparing for battle. You can't have your armor falling off while you're trying to fight for your life. It's readiness, it's preparedness. You remember that Jesus called Satan the father of lies? And the only way to battle a liar is what? It's with the truth. And what's this beginning point, this starting point in truth, this beginning of our spiritual defense? Several times in Ephesians, the same Greek word for truth is used and associated to speak of the gospel. It's not just truth in general. Ephesians 4.21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth of what? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That a person can't be saved from their sins by means of their own effort, their own good works. They must receive the free gift of God given by grace and appropriated by faith. The endowment of forgiveness, the payment for sin. Even more directly, and this is a verse we're going to refer to numbers of times. It is a key verse in Ephesians. It's Ephesians 1.13. Speaks of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, just a little technicality here. That's what's called an exegetical phrase. Where you have a general phrase followed by a specific one that tells you what the general one meant. You have the general phrase, the word of truth. Is that referring just to the whole Bible? No, the exegetical phrase says the gospel of your salvation, the truth of the gospel. And so the belt of truth is closely associated with your saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, where is the first place Satan is going to try to hit you? He's going to try to hit you at your assurance of salvation. But you're to remember the truth. The truth is, for example, 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may not hope, not dream, not guess, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the the starting place. Because if you're constantly wondering about your status before God, all other spiritual confidence is impossible. You, you can't take up the shield of faith. You can't put on the helmet of the salvation if you're afraid the belt of truth is not going to stay. It cuts the legs out from any other attempt to do with Ephesians 6.14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So we start off with the truth of the gospel. And then we put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, this is the main piece of armor worn over the torso by a Roman soldier to protect his vital organs. 
Now we have a little grammatical question here. The descriptive noun righteousness can either be the righteousness which belongs to God or it can be the righteousness which is the responsibility of the believer in Christ. So which one is it? Uh, The best sense here is, since it's in the context of the believer's life, is that the righteousness of God, which is imputed, which is credited to the believer, should massively impact the righteous behavior of believers in Christ. That's a component of spiritual warfare. It is your behavior. It's how you act. Our sanctification, our growing Christ-likeness is a direct result of what? Of the gospel. It's an outworking of our salvation. Your personal disobedience, it diminishes your capacity for discernment. It diminishes your capacity for strength in the Lord. If there isn't the pursuit of personal holiness in your life, not perfection, but the pursuit, then Satan already has a foothold and he'll try to pry it open with all of his might. We already have an example right here in Ephesians, two chapters earlier. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity. It's a Greek word that means foothold to the devil. When you're in the day of evil, or if you're preparing for the day of evil, one of the basics that you do, the breastplate of righteousness, is to simply take a spiritual inventory. And since Paul has said to put on the breastplate of righteousness here in Ephesians, he's already provided a checklist for you. Basically, all of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is that checklist. It is the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 4, look with me at verse 1. This is the key verse of all of Ephesians. It's the theme of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then, in the, these three chapters, Paul covers the church. He covers church leadership, doctrinal purity, evangelism, the renewal of your minds. He says, stop lying, stop being angry all the time, stop stealing, stop gossiping. He says, be kind, be tender-hearted, forgive. You obey those things, Now, that's spiritual warfare. That is taking the battle to the enemy. Then, back in chapter 6, verse 15, we put on the shoes of readiness. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The soldiers' shoes, they wore leather soles and they had bits of metal embedded in them to act kind of like cleats to keep their footing in the midst of battle. Because if you lose your footing, you're going to die. Now, for this piece of armor in particular, it's important that we think as if we've just read all of Ephesians. Because this particular phrase, the gospel of peace, has a definite context in the whole book within the letter itself. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. This phrase, the gospel of peace, isn't just something that Paul thought would go nicely in chapter 6. It's related. It's connected. There's an intertextual relationship. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Just before we read this part, one of the purposes of Ephesians was to correct any notion that Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians were superior in any way. This was a big issue in Paul's day. Verses 11 through 18 highlight that both Jew and Gentile are brought together under 
the banner of Christ. It doesn't demolish their identities as Jew and Gentile. We see Jews identified as Jews in the new Jerusalem on new earth. In fact, there are gates named after them in Revelation 21. But what we see is Jew and Gentile united at the cross. Verse 11 Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you that you were at that time separated from Christ. In other words, he's telling Gentiles, don't get all haughty about your salvation, because there was a time when you were like basically running through the woods while the Jews were worshiping God. And so he he reminds them of that. But look at how Paul describes this unity In the gospel, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making what? Peace. Verse 17. And he came, this is Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And so for all who participate in the gospel of peace, look at this grand statement of assurance that you are part of something eternal. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're part of the household of God. You are citizens with the saints. You're built on the apostles and the prophets. You're built on the cornerstone of Christ. The church is built into this holy temple which is being built into a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. In other words, God has accomplished something hitherto unheard of, the unity of Jew and Gentile at the cross. And so that part of his kingdom program is accomplished. He's done it. God's kingdom is moving forward. And these are the types of truths that are the cleats in your shoes that allow you to be ready. They allow you to dig in. They allow you to stand firm. And again, it's all centered on the gospel. And then we take up the shield of faith back in Ephesians 6. The shield of faith in verse 16, it refers specifically to the large shield. There were two types of shield, a little small one, but a large shield. The large shield was used by the Roman soldier to basically protect his entire body. And this was a shield that was used to protect against what? Flaming arrows. And you would put them all together and and form this, this wall of shields And this enables the believer to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. We examined his flaming arrows, his darts in the previous message. Now, once again here, we have a grammatical question. Is the faith that's spoken of here, is this the body of truth, which constitutes the Christian faith as given in the scripture, or does it speak of personal trust and confidence in the Lord? Is it something given from God, or is it something we engender toward God, our confidence? Well, Thankfully, this time we don't have to make a choice. Our personal trust and confidence in the Lord has to be based on and founded in the body of truth which constitutes our faith, right? Which constitutes the Christian faith. What this means is that knowledge of the word in and of itself 
is a means to bolster your faith. It is the means for you to be strengthened. And this is a great concern to me and to, to many leaders in the church of Jesus Christ that the church has become biblically illiterate and has become really addicted to little aphorisms and moralisms and that's all we have and when difficult times when the day of evil comes now suddenly we don't have anything to cling to we have little sayings we have mottos well god is in control well i'm just leaning on god well god will do his will yeah those are nice and those are true but is that all we want to use to describe god as a shield is that all the book of psalms uses the metaphor of a shield to speak of God numbers of times. Listen to these. God lifts my head when it's down. God lifts my head when it's down. Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the, the lifter of my head. It's the idea of I'm looking down in shame and in defeat. And God says, no, you look up because you're my child. God gives blessing and favor. Psalm 5, verse 12, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. God gives mighty protection as a shield. Psalm 18, verse 2, this this is overwhelming. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation. It means strength, my stronghold. It's a repetitive saying God saying, I've given you a rock to stand on. There's a fortress around that, a wall around that, a dome over that, a fortress around that, and if that's not enough, here's a shield. God helps our wavering hearts. He helps our wavering hearts. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I'm helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Did you catch that? You sing to the Lord because God is your shield. God enables us to wait on his timing because he's our shield. We can wait on him. Psalm 33, 20, our Lord, our, our soul waits for the Lord, rather. He is our help and our shield. The shield is big and it's strong and you go, it's safe in here. I can stay here all day. God will bring eventual honor to you as your shield. Psalm 84, 11 for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did you catch that? There will be a day when there is literally no good thing. If I can be a double negative here, there's no good thing you don't have. It's not now, but it will happen. How about this When God hides us safely with his word. He hides us safely with his word. Psalm 119, 114 You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Listen, now that's God as a shield. God lifts my head when it's down. He gives blessing and favor. He gives mighty protection. He helps our wavering hearts. He enables us to wait on his timing. He brings eventual honor to you, and he hides us safely with his word. Now that's a shield. Not just little sayings, but truth. The truth about God, which bolsters your trust and your confidence in the Lord. And why can you have that confidence? Why do you have this confidence? Because God, according to Psalm 7, he is aiming his wrath at the ungodly. And it's pictured as as God pulling back this arrow. And where are you? You're behind him, peeking around, going, I'm glad I'm not over there. I'm behind the shield of my God. 
And he may aim his wrath everywhere else, but it will never be aimed at me because of Christ. And then we take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, this is the piece of armor we most readily relate to because we still use helmets today. It's obviously protecting the most vital part of yourself. You can live without an arm or a leg, not without your head. Everybody knows that. The helmet says that your salvation is protected no matter what. What does the helmet say? It says that you're connected to Christ. You are in union with Christ. That protection is absolute. Ephesians 1.3, we're blessed in Christ. 1.12, we're in Christ in hope. Chapter 2, verse 6, we're seated in heaven in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7, God's grace is given to us in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10, we're God's workmanship created in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13, we're once we're far from God, now we're in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 6, we who were far off are now promised to be in Christ. And because of being in Christ, this is very simple, Christ will be wherever you are. He will be wherever you are. Jesus said in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, obviously, not only will Christ be wherever you are, soon you will be wherever he is. John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. How can you ultimately be defeated by Satan if the end result of your salvation is that you will always be with Christ? That's the helmet of salvation. Isn't that wonderful? Christ will always be where you are, and you will always be where he is. When it feels as though Satan's attacks are overwhelming you, when the day of evil is upon you, when bad things are happening in the sovereign purposes of God and you, you feel like God isn't helping, take your strength from union with Christ, from the helmet of salvation that can never be taken, can never be taken. And finally, we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, verse 17. Here we have the first offensive weapon in the armor of God. Of course, our greatest example of the word of God being used to fight off the attacks of Satan is the heroic battle fought by the Lord Jesus Christ himself at his own temptation. Jesus used his knowledge of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8 to fight off Satan. You don't take up the sword of the Spirit by occasional reading. You don't take up the sword of the Spirit by knowing a verse here and there. You don't take up the sword of the Spirit by physically keeping your Bible close to you or as in some charismatic circles as they wave Bibles at people. It'd be a lot more effective if you just opened it. Taking up the sword of the Spirit is accomplished through a lifetime of the vigorous pursuit of the knowledge of God, listening to thousands of sermons, regular reading, regular verse-by-verse study, regular pursuit of understanding theology, knowing the story of Scripture start to finish to see the big picture, the vigorous application of Scripture to your own life, meditating on the Word of God. That doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens because you make a vigorous effort. You don't say, Uh Uh-oh, Satan is attacking. I'd better get serious about the Bible. That's too late. 
It's too late for that attack. After you dust yourself off, after having been run over and defeated, now you go, learn my lesson. You know, Psalm 119, verse 71 says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I got run over. All right, Lord, I'm opening my Bible now. So take up the sword of the Spirit now and have some urgency about it. The moment you think, I think I've got this figured out, Satan's got you in his sights. But again, the focus of the broader scope of Ephesians is the gospel. I said we refer to Ephesians 1.13 a couple of times. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Here's the word again, the gospel as revealed in the scriptures, that is the offensive weapon in that the gospel keeps your eyes on Christ. The gospel keeps your eyes on heavenly things, on your heavenly future. It's the gospel that reminds you over and over and over again, just like the belt of truth, just like the breastplate of righteousness, just like the shoes of the readiness of the gospel, just like the shield of faith, just like the helm of the salvation. All of these keep you rooted and deeply grounded in your identity in Christ and the security that you enjoy as a child of the living God. So the first purpose of the armor of God, all centered on the gospel, is your spiritual protection through the gospel. This is why you must proclaim the gospel to yourself. You must read it. You must hear it. You must enjoy it every day. But there's a second purpose, and it gets bigger now. The second purpose of the armor of God, the church's health, through your obedience. The church's health through your obedience. Ephesians is an incredibly tightly woven, interconnected letter. It's woven by God with many colors, but those colors repeat themselves often. And so we can see themes. Every piece of the armor of God, which is provided by God, has a corresponding human responsibility attached to it. Every one of them. Your responsibility as a part of the church of Jesus Christ is to keep unity, to keep maturity, to contribute to the health of the church, not be part of her difficulty, not be part of making the church frail and anemic. The theme of unity and maturity in the church is very clear in Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 3, we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to what? To the unity of the faith. These are just samples. Every chapter, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, in Ephesians, has admonitions toward unity and maturity. Every one of them. In fact, the armor of God serves as a recap, a summary of, A synopsis of the main themes of all of Ephesians. It is the summary. And it does this in terms of two categories of truths. And this has to get a little technical here, but this is what the Lord did through the Apostle Paul. The first category is what in Greek is called the indicatives. The indicatives are simply statements of fact. They're verbs that say, this is what God has done. And the second category are the imperatives. We've talked about those more. The imperatives are the the corresponding commands and human responsibility. So you have the indicatives, those things God has done, and the imperatives, those things we are to do. The indicatives are what God has provided. The imperatives consist of what our response is to what God has provided. And the armor of God summarizes both. The belt of truth. The indicatives in Ephesians, what God has provided. 
Chapter 1, verse 13, again, the gospel of our salvation comes through hearing the word of truth. God has provided that. It's an indicative. Ephesians 5, 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The light of God is found in his revealed truth. God has done that. What about the imperatives? Our responsibility. Chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 25, what are we to speak in love? The truth. We are to speak the truth in love to fellow believers. To do what? To mature them in Christ. How about the breastplate of righteousness? The indicatives. What God has provided. Chapter 4 verse 24 says that the new self is created in the likeness of God in righteousness. God has done that. Chapter 5 verse 9. Again, all that is right. Same root word in Greek as righteous. Is found in the light of God. There are corresponding imperatives, our responsibility. Chapter 4, verse 24, we're to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. How about the shoes of the gospel of peace? The indicatives, what God has provided. Chapter 1, verse 2, peace with God comes from God and from Christ. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, Christ is our peace with the Father and with one another. Jesus came preaching peace. We read that a moment ago in verse 17 of chapter 2. What about the imperatives? Our responsibility. Chapter 4, verse 3, maintain unity through what? Through peace. Chapter 6, verse 3, let there be peace among the brothers. How about the shield of faith, the indicatives? What God has provided. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Faith is a gift from God. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Men such as apostles, prophets, pastors, uh, evangelists, and teachers. They are given to build up the church in what? In the faith. What about the imperatives? Our responsibility concerning the shield of faith. Again, chapter 1, verse 13. We are to believe. It's a Greek word that means have faith. Exercise saving faith in Christ for salvation. How about the helmet of salvation? The indicatives, what God has provided. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Salvation is by God's grace and it's certain. Chapter 5, verse 23. Christ is the author of our salvation. What are the responsibilities, the imperatives? Because of this salvation. Chapter 4, verse 1. We already read this. Walk in the manner worthy of that salvation. Worthy of that calling. And how about the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the indicatives, what God has provided. Chapter 1, verse 13, again, the Word of God has brought salvation to you. Chapter 5, verse 26, the Word of God is what washes you, what cleanses you from sin, whether our responsibilities, whether the imperatives. Chapter 5, verse 6, don't be deceived by empty words, by words not found in Scripture. What does that mean? There is no other authority except the Bible. Chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, which is analogous to the parallel passage in Colossians 3, 16, which tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In chapter 5, verse 19, we're to address one another in psalms. We're to encourage one another with Scripture. I think it now becomes very clear that the armor of God is not just about you. It's about those around you. But it gets even bigger than that. First purpose, the spiritual protection, your spiritual protection through the gospel. The second purpose, the church's health through your gospel. Here's the biggest one. The advancement of Christ's kingdom through your ministry. The purpose of the armor of God is the advancement of Christ's kingdom through your ministry. The armor of God in Ephesians 6 
involves more than just a, a defensive engagement with the devil. It involves the aggressive use of the gospel to combat evil, to expand the kingdom of Christ. And how do you expand the kingdom of Christ? By shrinking the kingdom of Satan. You are responsible to put on the full armor of God for the sake of kingdom expansion, to bring the gospel to the lost. Now, I want to prove this to you, not only from right here in Ephesians, but from another place in the Bible that might surprise you. So let's return to the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, for example. What is this? Well, this certainly is our comforting reminder of the peace that's been made with God on our behalf through Christ. But the word gospel, good news, is by definition something that's proclaimed. You you don't say, I think it's great to just think the gospel to all those around me. No, you say it. Now, there's been a long debate as to whether the shoes are the readiness of the gospel of peace. Is that a defensive weapon or is it an offensive weapon? Some say, as I've said, that it's defensive and that the knowledge of the peace you have with God is a sure and steadying source of strength. That is true. Others say that you're protected from the wiles of the devil by means of evangelism. That doesn't make any sense. So what is it? If we say the gospel shoes are a defensive weapon, listen carefully, if they're a defensive weapon personally, the knowledge of the peace you have with God, and an offensive weapon for the greater cause of the expansion of the kingdom, now that makes sense. One scholar wrote, Standing firm can also involve carrying the attack into enemy territory, of plundering Satan's kingdom by announcing the promise of divine rescue to captives in the realm of darkness. This undoubtedly involves carrying the attack into enemy territory, which is clearly to adopt an offensive stance. In other words, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, you don't use it as an offensive weapon by saying, you know, Satan's attacking me, I better go share the gospel so that I can feel better. No. It's defensive in our knowledge of the gospel, but it is an offensive weapon in that we say, this is not about me. I'm going to take some of Satan's territory through the gospel. Let's return to the shield of faith. There's a clear gospel relationship in Ephesians 2 verse 8. By grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. Galatians 1.23 speaks of preaching the faith. Philippians 1.28 speaks of striving in the ministry for the faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 speaks of fighting the good fight of what? Of the faith. Our faith is not just a possession from which we draw strength. There's more to that. It's the content of your faith and what are you supposed to do with it? You're supposed to tell people about it. You're supposed to proclaim it. That's the church's mission. And you do your part by using your spiritual gifts in the church by facilitating the presentation of the gospel. I've said this before, but the greatest evangelistic so-called method, if you want to call that, for 2,000 years has overwhelmingly been one singular method. Christians who were enamored with the gospel of Christ going to their friends, co-workers, and family and saying, you've got to hear this message and doing what? Bringing them to church. That's how the church has grown. Let's return to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Again, Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You heard it. How did you hear it? It means somebody said something. They proclaimed it. 1 Peter 1.25 speaks of the gospel that this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. The gospel is something the word of God is proclaimed. It is said aloud. Interestingly here, when 
Paul speaks of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When writing of the Word of God, the Apostle Paul normally uses the Greek word logos, just means word. But here he uses rhema. Rhema can be interchangeable with logos to mean word, but rhema tends to be much more emphasizing the spoken word, the proclaimed gospel. So we could say this, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the proclaimed word of God. Now it's not just about you. You see that the armor of God far outreaches just your personal spiritual protection. It goes far beyond that. That's how we tend to think of Ephesians 6. Now, there is ground to be taken away from Satan. It's to be taken on behalf of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And now you're not just thinking of yourself. You're thinking in terms of expanding the sphere of Christ's victory even further. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to be Christ's representative on earth. And the means by which Christ's victory over sin is extended is by shrinking the dominion of Satan. And we do this by obediently using the armor of God to protect ourselves, to deal rightly with one another so that then we can extend that out into the ministry. Now, just in case you don't believe me from Ephesians 6 and from the book of Ephesians, I want to drive this point home one more time that the bigger and I think maybe the biggest The most important purpose of the armor of God is the advancement of Christ's kingdom through your ministry. I want to show you the Old Testament basis for the Apostle Paul's use of the armor of God. Turn with me all the way back to Isaiah 11, if you would. Isaiah 11 is a glorious prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Verse 24 describes the coming kingdom rule of Messiah. I'm sorry, verse 4 describes his coming kingdom rule. He'll judge with wisdom. He'll dominate the world. He'll destroy evil in the world. The world will be filled with kingdom citizens. The church of Jesus Christ has completed its mission in the church age and is now ruling alongside him. Why? Because the gospel has done its work. And how is the Lord Jesus Christ said to be dressed? Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You mean the armor of God is the armor of Christ himself? Yes, it is. The armor of a victorious conqueror who's now ruling on earth. And this conqueror now presides over a new kingdom in which even the creation itself is different. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. The little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Turn with me to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 again pictures a day when Christ is on earth. The gospel has done its work. Israel is redeemed. In Isaiah 52 we get more of the armor of God. Look at the feet of the Son of God. Isaiah 52 verse 6 Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who brings what? The gospel. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Blessed are the feet of Christ because they've brought the good news, the gospel of what? The gospel of peace. This is a picture of Christ as the messenger of his own gospel saying, have joy, have happiness, have peace through the blood of Christ. And in verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Why did Paul call the shoes of the readiness of the gospel the gospel of peace? Because that's what the origin of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, will proclaim. Peace. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, 1 through 15, describes the seemingly hopeless situation of Israel's sin. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mothers wickedness. Verse 7, it's still hopeless. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Verse 10, it's still hopeless. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. All is lost. Sin will win. Mankind is going to hell. But God will intervene and he'll send a a divine warrior to defeat sin. Verse 15, the second half. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and the Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. Messiah comes in the armor of God to defeat his enemies and to save those that he would give salvation. Those enemies are derived from Satan and he will defeat them. One more proof that the armor of God is ultimately about the decimation of Satan's kingdom by means of the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Go back with me to Ephesians 6 one last time and then we'll be done. One more proof. At the end of the armor of God metaphor, Paul closes out that picture with another admonition. It's not really part of the metaphor, but it really puts a cap on all of it. He closes out that picture now in verse 18 by speaking of continual prayer. And in the context of Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, what are the prayers about? 
Look at 6.18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's what the armor of God is for. In context, the armor of God is for personal protection so that you can contribute to a unified and matured church so that you can be part of the advancement of Christ's kingdom by means of the proclamation of the gospel. So you see, when Satan gets you thinking about yourself all the time, when the church becomes a means for personal satisfaction and fulfillment, when everything becomes about you, when Satan uses you to make a difficult church instead of a good church, when Satan uses you to distract believers from kingdom pursuits, the real aim is achieved because he thwarted the cause of the gospel. Do you think Satan really cares whether you're miserable or not? No. What he cares about is denigrating the name of Christ and he will use the body of Christ to do so. Unless you put on the armor of God for you personally, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the gospel. In fact, our theme verse at Grace Bible Church gives us that very mission, doesn't it? Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present. It means to stand before, to take something and say, look, I'm giving this to you, that we may present everyone mature, completed, perfected, where? In Christ. It's the same thing. Why? Because ultimately the armor of God is not all about you. It is about defeating Satan by advancing the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now ever so thankful. We're thankful for the cross of Christ, which of course is the means by which we're protected from your wrath and we're protected from an eternity of destruction. But it also is the means by which you would have us love one another in the church and the means by which you would have us love the world by proclaiming the truth of the gospel to a dying world. So Lord, I pray you would make us faithful. And now Lord, as we remember the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would give us somber hearts yet joyful hearts, serious hearts yet uplifted hearts as we now think upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.